now been several weeks uh, that we've been reading through the book of James together and we're in the middle of chapter 5 this week. Next Sunday will be uh, the last uh, in our series through James, this series that we've called The Subtle Art of Living Well. For today's sermon, we can introduce it with just one word. We can capture the main point and do its application, all with one word, patience. We all know what it is. We've all experienced life without it and we all wish we had more of it. Patience. Uh, For many of us, the kind of patience that we are experts in is impatience. Because of our extensive experience with impatience, this sermon needs to be more than one word. Now, the patience that James talks about is more than an action. It's more than a response to certain circumstances in life. It's a whole-of-life posture that comes with a wise perspective on life. Patience is a posture that comes from a wise perspective. And within that wise perspective, we know God's character and know God's timing. Uh, Augustine, a wise man of the 4th century, said, Patience is the companion of wisdom. Well, patience, James will say, is the subtle art of living well. And this is what we're going to hear from James. We're going to read verses 7 to 12 of chapter 5, but it will be helpful if we rewind a little bit. So let's go back into chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13, we'll start at and read all the way through to chapter 5, verse 12. Now listen... You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money? Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Now, I rewound that reading a little bit because it's important for us to remember the context here. That James has just addressed two groups of people who are not wise. First of all, in chapter 4, verse 13, he's addressed the merchants, the upwardly mobile in the first century world, the traders, uh, the, the ambitious, those who were making money here, there and everywhere, doing life apart from God. The other group that James is addressing uh, is in chapter 5, verse 1, that we looked at last week, the rich. Those who are building up wealth for themselves, only looking at their own timeline in, 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 in life, doing it in a way that is self-indulgent, that is apart from God, that has no concern uh, for others and the poor, even oppressing them, they are doing life apart from God. Now, it's likely that the believers that James is writing to, the brothers and sisters that he then addresses in verse 7, the Christians, it's likely that they are the very ones who are being oppressed by the merchants and the rich. At the least, some of these Christians would be tempted in looking on to saying, why don't we have what they have got? In the midst of the the suffering and the... Uh, 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 oppression and the seemingly unfairness of the situation, they'll be saying, where is God? And James has one word, patience. Verse 7, he says, develop patience like the farmer who is waiting for the harvest of a crop. Now, we need not know hardly anything about farming to be able to make sense of this. You cannot speed up farming. You cannot make things grow quicker. You you cannot take shortcuts. You can't plant zucchinis half-grown. And the crop is worthless while it is growing. A farmer has patience Because at the right time, the harvest, it will come. The farmer will have a valuable crop. You cannot do farming without patience. James says, patience 
is the posture for living well. But why have this patience? Why is this patience possible? Because, verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Like for the farmer, expectant of the autumn and the spring rains, expectant of the crop coming in its good time, brothers and sisters can be patiently expectant of the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming is a a definite event in history. James expects it, the New Testament disciples expect it, the writers of the New Testament expect it, Jesus expects it. In fact, Jesus' coming in the future is mentioned around about 300 times in the New Testament. I think that's about once every 13 verses. That's a couple of times every page. It is an event that will disrupt history and open the doors into eternity. When the risen Lord Jesus returns, He returns to judge and with all the authority of God the Creator and God the Father, He has given authority to judge between those who will know eternity in the new heavens and the new earth and those who will know eternity apart from God in hell. That is the day of the Lord's coming. A definite event in history. A definite event that is ahead for you and I and everyone who has ever lived. A day of judgment. But hear this quote from John Dixon, a Christian author and historian, about that day of judgment that I found really helpful this week. God's judgment is not simply a theological scare tactic designed to make the non-religious more religious. Judgment is the pledge of the loving God to oppressed humanity that He hears their cry for justice and will one day bring His justice to bear on every act of tyranny. So James is not talking about God's judgment here to scare us into some kind of moral behaviour. So that in moments of impatience, we might go, oh, I might get judged for this. James is not writing about judgment here uh, so, so that unbelievers and those who don't know Jesus go, well, I don't want that. I know that's some of the kind of superstition uh, that Syl was talking about that captures people in other parts of the world and in our own. Uh, James is talking about judgment here as a comfort for us. The Lord's coming is to be a comfort for believers. As much as judgment comes out of God's holiness, judgment comes from His compassion. As Jesus comes to put things right. And so this gives all believers a perspective now every moment of every day that will sustain patience and perseverance even when times are tough. Now James immediately goes on to say that this is the opposite to what he's warning about in verse 9. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another brothers and sisters or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. 
Patience and perseverance, waiting for Jesus' return, should steer us away from grumbling. And not just a whining and a complaining or a, or a bickering or, a, or, or unfair critiquing. He's talking about agitating one another. Doing things to one another that's going to cause some kind of response. Doing things that stir one another up, not to love and good deeds, but bringing people down and rather being focused on Jesus' coming and the great joy that is captured in that being focused in on the mess of grumbling and groaning and complaining against one another. James says that in the midst of trials, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of not having, in the midst of seeing what others have, in the midst of waiting, fights can and will break out. This, in chapter 4, he talked about is the very heart of fights and quarrels, is wanting something that somebody else has got that you yourself don't have. See, James is so wise, isn't he? He just keeps observing uh, life around about him, he observes his own life and his own family, he observes his neighbours and he goes, what causes fights and rungles, what fight causes fights and quarrels amongst you? It's the desires in your own heart, wanting for something that you don't have that somebody else has got. He's always got an answer for it, well ask God. Anyway, don't want to go back and preach chapter 4. Wise James is so aware of the damage that we can do with our tongues. He's been talking about it all the way uh, through this letter. And here, when our hearts are impatient, we'll grumble and groan against one another, even if we are not responsible uh, for what's coming on. James says our tongues just unleash, they're like that, that wildfire that cannot be controlled. And when we're grumbling and groaning against one another, instead we could be reminding one another of Jesus' coming. It's in the very moments of impatience where we need patience. It's in the very moments of impatience where our patience is most grown and developed. And you kind of can't really grow impatience in any other time except for when you're confronted with impatience. It's like trying to grow muscle. You can't grow muscle sleeping in bed. You've actually got to challenge it and and, uh, put it under the stress that it needs. James says, like a farmer, we need to develop patience. Why? Because the Lord is coming... And in the midst of that, we need to steer away from grumbling. Now, James has got another reason for patience in verses 10 and 11. Let's have a look at those again. Brothers and sisters, it is an example of patience in the face of suffering. Uh, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. James says, develop patience and perseverance like the Old Testament prophets and Job. The Old Testament prophets are those who were appointed by God to speak God's Word on behalf of God to God's people. Often words of promise, sometimes words of judgment 
The prophets never really had an easy time in delivering those messages. And almost always they were delivering those messages without ever seeing the outcome of what they were prophesying from God. They are an example to us of patience and perseverance. So is Job. What do you know about Job's story? Just take a moment to chat to the person next to you, introduce yourself if if you want to. Do you know anything about Job? Just, Just try and come up with three, five things about Job and his story. Right, what did you share with one another? There's a couple of people want to yell out some things that you've heard about uh, Job that you know from reading his story or that kind of thing. Just, just, a, just a couple of things. Let's, let's pull our wisdom here. What was that, Derek? That's risky. <laughs> That's risky, pulling our wisdom. He suffered though he didn't deserve it. Yep, what else? He lost everything that he had except for his life, his wife. Uh, Now, I don't want to make any wife jokes here. She, Job's particular wife, not a stereotype, Job's wife then gave him a really hard time. Um, So there's one way of saying, yep, so he had his life, he had his wife and three very unhelpful mates. Um, yeah, but lost everything else, his children, uh, all of his money, all of his farming land, all, um, uh, all of his crops, all, all, of his, all of his animals. Yeah, what else do we know about Job? Never lost his faith in God. So James is holding him up here as an example for us of patience and perseverance. Lost his health, yeah, he had all kinds of things on his skin and was scraping them with clay pots and he sat in ash and sackcloth and you can Google pictures about Job, though we don't know what he looked like, but you can, yeah, don't do it while you're having your cornflakes. Now, nobody has yet mentioned the end of the story. What happened to Job in the end? So please come with me to Job chapter 42. Job's a pretty easy book to find. Go right in the middle of the Bible, right in the middle of your Bible, if you've got a New Testament and Old Testament together, right in the middle of the Bible, you'll probably come across Psalms. And Job's just before Psalms. And we're going to the last chapter of Job, chapter 42. For those who like biblical puzzles, you might like to try and work out how long... Job suffered for, from when he lost everything until we get to chapter 42. I'd be interested in hearing what you, what you think. I don't, I'm not sure we can know for certain. Is it a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years, a whole lifetime? You might look to this. But this is how it ends. This is the end of Job's story. Chapter 42, verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, those unhelpful mates... The Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. 
The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Ketziah, and the third Karen Hapach. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years." James commends us to have Job's patience and perseverance. Because Job was patient and persevered with God. He never knew what the outcome of his faith might be. He never knew what the outcome of God's compassion and mercy might be. But he stuck with God. Why? Why did Job have patience and perseverance? Why can we have patience and perseverance? Because of who God is. Because of God's character. Back in James chapter 5, verse 11, should have got you to bookmark it, but those who have persevered with me long enough will know not to um, turn the pages and not plan to go back. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We can have perseverance and patience because of who God is. Job can persevere because of who God is. The Old Testament prophets stick with the message that God has given them in the midst of circumstances which make it very hard for them because of who God is. Those that James is writing to, though they might be poor, though they might be oppressed, though they might be looking at others round about them and going, where are you God? Though they might be enduring fights and quarrels and jealousy over what one has and the other doesn't, they can persevere severe and be patient because of who God is. Verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. God has no capacity in him for unkindness. He is full to the very top with compassion and mercy. He gives generously of everything that we need for life and godliness. If we need what God gave to Job, God will give it to us. If we need 1,000 donkeys and seven sons and three daughters who are more beautiful than other with God will give it to us. God will give us everything that we need for life and godliness. God will give us everything that we need for living out His good plans and purposes for us. And we might sit here and go, wow, wow, what what God gave Job? That is incredible. I could do with a few extra donkeys. Actually, couldn't. I was reading that list and I was going, I wouldn't know what to do with these things. This would be a great burden on me. Wouldn't fit them in my Kia van. But as incredible as God's compassion and mercy to Job is in in, in restoring his fortunes and even giving him more. We've got to get our perspective right on this. God gives even more to those who belong to him in Christ. 
please turn in your Bible to the very next book, 1 Peter. Not after Job, after James. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. After Jesus has come into the world, after He has lived, after He has shown the what God's kingdom is like after he has gone to the cross for us to bring about the forgiveness of sins as he's gone into the grave and out the other side into the resurrection of new life as he has ascended into heaven as seated at the right hand of God ruling over the world and providing everything for his world that we need and being the judge of the one who will give the doorway into eternity we sit and stand in the same place of history as as Peter who is writing this down to Christians who are enduring hardship in the first century. He was writing this down at the same time as James. And this is what he says. This, This is what is even more than what was promised to Job. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. An inheritance that is better than the inheritance of Job. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now from time to time, we will not feel like this is true. When we are feeling like in a time of need, when we're, when we're going through a hardship, when we're in the midst of conflict, when we're being let down by other people or we're just in that season of life where there's this tiredness and we're kind of going, where are you God? We need to know God's character. We need to be reminded through His Word and through history as He has revealed Himself to His people like Job that God is full of compassion and mercy and that this God is our God and that His promises are true. As James says back in chapter 1 that in the midst of those trials God is building up perseverance in us patience so that he might grow us to maturity in faith and godliness knowing this character about god and the certainty of what he's promised will then steer us away from swearing in verse 12 Uh, swearing of oaths it's another it's another tongue problem that we have let's read verse 12 and then I'll make a comment about it. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. 
I think what James is referring to here is, is in the first century, a whole system uh, developed, a kind, kind of like a pinky promise kind of system. A, a system of making oaths, of, of making promises. And there was a whole hierarchical, um, tiered system of how sincere your promise was based on whether you swore on your mother's grave or your... your the hair on your dog's back or swore on the temple or, or there was a, high, a whole hierarchy and there was even um, a kind of swearing an oath that was completely meaningless and so, so it, was, it was kind of code for well I'm going to say this and I'm going to promise to do this and I'm going to swear it by this and that was code for you're actually not going to do it at all. That's what was going on in the first century and so you could, you could make a promise, you could say something and it might be more or less binding on you. Well, James is just tipping that all upside down and, 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 and throwing it out. Uh, in our times, let's, let, let's, let's think about for us in, in, in dark times of hardship and oppression, in relationships that are conflicted, lies, something that is less than the truth, can be very comforting to us. We can tell ourselves lies, believe things about ourselves that are less true, tell others lies about ourselves in a situation, think and believe things about other people that are less than true, that will bring us some kind of comfort for that moment. In dark times of hardship, we can, we can make promises to ourselves, make promises to others and promises to God that we will keep if we can get out of this darkness, that we can get out of this trial and this hardship. Whether James is speaking, or as James speaks in that first century situation and speaks into our context today, those who know patient confidence in God do not need lies and knee-jerk promises. We are free, free to live out a simple and beautiful ethic of truth-telling. And that truth-telling will develop in us a patience and a perseverance like that of the Old Testament prophets and Job. It's the subtle art of living well. Well, let's bring it all together in one word. Do you remember what the word is? Patience. Patience. Have you tried out one of those escape rooms yet? With a group or a party, you can, you can go to a room that's been made and it's full of cryptic puzzles and you've got to solve number things and colour puzzles and shape things and you might have to put things in here and there and undo different locks and do it, do it all in the right order so that you can escape uh, from this room. It can be a little bit uh, frustrating if you get stuck on one particular puzzle and you keep looking at it from, from different angles and if you were probably on your own you'd be quite okay but you've got another group of people there with you who keep talking and suggesting other solutions to it. I was okay in the room. Until, until you get that key, that clue, that answer that slots into place and makes it all make sense. 
and you escape. The key to patience, the key to perseverance, the key for us putting this into practice in our lives, the key is knowing that Jesus is coming and knowing that God is full of compassion and mercy. And we can build up our knowledge of these things, knowing that Jesus is coming, knowing that God is full of compassion and mercy, but how do we build it into our consciousness? How do we actually grow this patience that James is talking about? How do we develop the subtle art of patience? Here's something I've been trying for a few days and hopefully going to keep it up for a few months. Every time I feel impatient, every time I grip the steering wheel a little bit harder, every time the molars that I have left at the back clench down a little bit more tightly, every time I feel like I need to run or walk faster or hurry kids along, every time I feel agitated by somebody, every time I feel every little bit of impatience rising up at me, the rainbow wheel spinning on my laptop, the web page that won't load in three seconds, the two-car queue at the McDonald's drive-thru, no, I never go to McDonald's, no, yes I do. Every time I feel a moment of impatience, I'm trying to say to myself, Jesus is coming, God is full of compassion and mercy. Now, it's not just having a reaction of patience that we're trying to develop here, but a whole posture of life that comes with the perspective of knowing who God is and knowing God's timing. And so how I can bring that into my consciousness at the moment is that, because remember, it's, it's like building those muscles. We've actually got to test them. And every time I'm facing those moments of impatience, and please remind me if you see it, telling myself, the Lord is coming. God is full of compassion and mercy. And I like we talked about wisdom last week, that a lot of it is sitting in a situation in life and slowing down and go, hey, how's this playing out in my life? How should I be living here? It's a subtle art, it's a, it's a skillful art of living well. A subtle art of living well. And so in the midst of impatience, may we meet it with this perspective of knowing Jesus is coming and God is full of compassion and mercy.